0: Anthropo, the first part of this, ology, or uh, logy, the second part of it. Logi comes from the Greek word logos. You can put that in the box underneath that if that's new to you. We find that word in the Greek New Testament some 339 times. And if you were to take the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, you'd have it a slew more times. That is translated word- And word is not just the word that you say, a single word in a sentence, but often it represents the whole body of someone's speech. He brought the word tonight, or he brought a word about politics tonight. That is the whole body of a speech. And then sometimes even further out, as it is used in this case, the study of a series of lectures or a series of expressions regarding a particular topic. That's logos, word, speech, or study. Anthropo. It right? comes from the Greek word, but we should, I suppose, for completeness, look at the Old Testament word, Adam. Adam, that should look very familiar to you. That was the name that God gave the first man, because that's what it means, Adam in Hebrew. Anthropos. In Greek is the Greek word that we have there. Those occur some 541 times in the Old Testament and 547 times, almost equally laid out there, in the New Testament, in the Greek New Testament. Of course, the Old Testament written in Hebrew originally, New Testament written in Greek. So this is a very, very common, frequent word. And if we're going to study people, then certainly there's a lot that the Bible has to say about people. We're going to define this word, adam or anthropos, We would define it man or mankind to be a little bit more sensitive to the mores of our day. We can call people and persons if you'd like, uh, if you're some kind of egalitarian and you need that. Or we want to talk just in terms of what we're talking about, how we've defined it on our advertising, human beings, humans. So we're studying what the Bible has to say about humans, and the Bible has a ton to say about humans from the very beginning chapter all the way to the end and the last chapter of the Bible, so much we can glean. That's why we have such a wide variety of topics in this semester. There's, of course, the other word, hamartiology, hamartiology, and that breaks down this way. Of course, we've got all the logi and logos and all of that figured out, but let's look at the components here. Hamartio, right? You've got that printed on your uh, outline there. Hataa, or hataat, Uh, There's two forms of this in Hebrew, is the word that we have in the scriptures, we'll define in a minute, and hamartia, the Greek word, these are the two words that occur all over the Bible, some 239 times in the Hebrew Old Testament and hamartia in the Greek New Testament 173 times. And if we were to define this, there's lots of ways we could define this, but primarily it means an offense. Obviously, this is directed most of the time toward God, things that are done that are an offense to God or a failure. If you've been around church at all, studying the word hamartia in the New Testament, sin, you might hear often the idea of falling short, uh, some kind of... Uh, You know, dereliction, some kind of uh, failure to do something, that might not be a bad word. But the idea, of course, is about sin or sinfulness, as we commonly call it. So, hamartiology is the study of what the Bible has to say from beginning to end about sin and sinfulness. Now, we put these together because they seem to go together. It's hard to teach on anthropology because once we get to the third chapter of the Bible, we have fallen humanity. Right? And we don't even get that fixed until you know, Revelation chapter 20. So we've got all these chapters intervening where we deal with some of the basics of mankind in the first two chapters. And we look at the eternal state at the end of the Bible. But in between, these people have fallen. So we have to really weave these two topics together. And that's why, though they're divided, as we think through them logically, we deal with them together. Let's think through some of our objectives for the next few weeks. Study of fallen humanity. What we're going to cover. We're going to talk about the nature of... Who is he? We'll talk about, you know, body, soul, spirit. We'll talk about, you know, all the things that are controversial regarding what the nature of people, the dignity of people, the sanctity of life, all the issues that deal with that. I mean, we're going to deal with things from capital punishment to drug use to, you know, plural marriage. I mean, we're going to be all over the place as it deals with how the stated dignity of humanity affects those kinds of things, what the Bible has to say about it, and the worth, of course, of human beings. Okay? A lot on that. Then, of course, as we deal with hamartiology or sin, we're going to talk about the impact. What impact did it have? What effect did it have? And what are the implications that people are, from Genesis 3 to Revelation 19, sinful. They're fallen. They are failures in terms of the moral law of God. Then, of course, we're going to try to... and every way that we can not maybe in every specific lecture will we get into this in depth but we're going to talk a lot about what it means to live a godly life as fallen people because of course we are redeemed more on that in the last section we deal with lord willing next year soteriology but we're going to talk about what it means to be people in a fallen world in a fallen society and still in a fallen encasement of flesh what it means to live a godly life with those disadvantages Why it's so important today? Well, if you don't understand the biblical view, God's view of humanity, you can guarantee that you are going to increase the things that you do that are sinful. All you have to do is look at our society, and every time a society or a culture leaves the idea of the nature, dignity, and worth of human beings as defined in the Bible, the cascading effect of compounding sin is all over the place. So we want to make sure we can shore this up and even have an influence in our society trying to state this as clearly and helpfully as we can to the people around us. Think about sin. If we don't have the right view of sin and the tendency of all human beings is to create in our minds a lower view of sin, well, that, of course, is going to increase sinfulness when the barriers go down and the magnitude of it goes down when no one is, as it says in the Old Testament, even blushing anymore over the sin of mankind. Well, then that increases sin Uh, as well. So we want to correct that. The right view of humanity and the right view of sin, if we understand those two things, uh, it'll make life a little harder for us, but we'll learn, I trust, to condition ourselves to be making the decisions with the empowerment of the Spirit and the direction of God's Word to do things that are pleasing to God. Not by the conforming to the world, but by the renewing of our mind, we'll come and offer our lives as living sacrifices, a lot on that woven throughout all that we talk about. So that's where we're going in a nutshell. That obviously is just a summation of where we're going. But when you talk about human beings, the first and most logical place that we should start to discuss uh, human beings is talk about where we came from. So we're going to talk about human origins for the remainder of the night. Two choices when it comes to human origins. Let's think through the first one. You can consider that whatever exists here in the material world got here on its own. Let's just call that self-creation. The Universe, including your tongue, your earlobe, uh, the capillaries, you know, inside your body, your the synapse in your brain, you know, the lizard in your backyard, uh, you know, the termites in your house. All of these things came to be on their own, self-creation. A word that has been used throughout the analysis of this view is usually naturalism, because what we're doing is we're looking at natural things. With natural propensities, natural laws, the way we see these natural things. And we're saying everything in the world is confined to what is natural. And you, you can see what we're excluding with that. There is nothing supernatural or supranatural. There's nothing beyond the natural. Everything is natural. And when it comes to the things that exist, they came to be because of natural means, self-creation. Now, of course, to try and think that through, and it's not new with Darwin, you should know. This has gone back for some time into classical you know, an antiquity. People have been trying to think through and discuss how maybe we got here without supernatural means. But if you look at the theories of how we got here, those are in constant flux. These theories regularly change. It wasn't, I mean, if you just think about the Big Bang cosmology, you know, the, the belief in a, you know, a 13.7 billion year old explosion, those views have not been around all that that long. But that is the current prevailing theory. Big Bang, 13.7 billion years, or as some would say, anywhere between 13, 15 billion years ago, something uh, exploded and that, I think we need to recognize, not only is a new theory, which doesn't make it a bad theory, it just means it's, it's new, was based on some things, that, I mean, there are reasons for this, right? The astronomers started with what they call the Doppler effect, like in the sound when the horn goes by you, in astronomy, which was from the early 20th century, to Hubble's discovery of redshift and things that look like... Uh, They gave hints to an expanding universe and ripples and radiation in the universe. And all of this, of course, you can hear on the Discovery Channel and we could go endlessly on any of these areas. If we were studied up on them, we could talk about them. But the point is, the evidence led them to extrapolate back into time that this was an explosion. Now, how you view this is wrong, I assure you. Uh, Because if you really talk to people that really understand the Big Bang, you, you don't have space, if you think about it. So this is not something that has a center and has edges, When you think of an explosion, you think of when you were in junior high, you bought the M80 from Tijuana and you blew it up, right? And you pictured it blowing up. And and when you heard the words Big Bang, you thought of that. Something that sat there in the driveway and blew up. That's not the idea. There is no center and there is no edge because there is no space. There's no time. There's nothing. So this is a... Uh, a, a, a spaceless explosion. This kind of an explosion where everything explodes all at once everywhere. Even to think theoretically about this, if you get past the popular picture of the cartoons and the sketches in the you know, high school books or whatever, uh, textbooks, you, you really start to realize what a bizarre thing this is. That from and though they'll call it a singularity or or a catalyst that was a a small infinitesimal uh, infin, infinitesimal little tiny energy you know point of nothingness almost it was not nothingness it was everything, but the everything of the Big Bang 13.7 billion years ago as it's theorized is not something that plays by the rules of physics, and this is so important for us to just think through. Because, I mean, we're looking at two options of self-creation and another kind of creation that involves God. But self-creation, I mean, it starts with something that when you get to the point of the Big Bang 13.7 billion years ago, we stop talking about realities because they're quick to say, well, we, we don't know, right? There's, there's not a knowledge there. But whatever it is, it has to be some, here's a word they won't want to hear in this discussion, but something transcendent. Something beyond what plays by the rules of physics because the rules of physics aren't created until the explosion at all places at time where everything then begins to expand. And again, they're talking in terms of small, small, infinitesimal, small periods of time. They have all kinds of theories about the the, the changes in the time and the point of singularity, where all hot, massive energy beyond our imagination exists. But in that explosion, now we have the rules of physics that can begin to, to take place. And if you're dealing with a reality, if you ask about it, and they say, well, we don't know, we can't discuss it. It's the unknown thing. You just need to realize the unknown thing is playing by a different set of rules than the things. This is something that If you want to talk in the terms of physics, it's no longer physics, it's now metaphysics. It's something beyond natural rules. And if you're talking about how this got going, and though everyone wants to shush you on that, because we don't want to talk about that, because it's the unknown reality. It's an unknown reality that's beyond the reality that can even be described as adhering to or submitted to any kinds of rules that we discuss in terms of nature or science or physics or all the rest. The cause, then, is not natural. In other words, naturalism has to have its origins in something that is unnatural. It doesn't apply to all the rules of nature. And again, I'm not talking about how they'll discuss you know, the, the split seconds you know, at, at the point of that explosion. I'm talking about prior to that. You have to have, you're stuck with something that is self-existing, right? That doesn't have an adherence to or a submission to the rules. So I would call that transcendent. And I'll put that in quotation marks. Whatever that is, it's transcendent. It transcends the realities of anything we know, of anything that can be known. But self-creationists will say, certainly not God, okay? Okay, so the self-existing eternal power. Let's put it in those terms. We're saying it sounds theology. It sounds like theology here, but I'm not talking theology. I'm talking the metaphysics right, of pre Big Bang explosions. That eternal self existing power is transcendent, but it's not God. Now, again, not getting into the details of the theory, I'm just saying those are things that you have to admit, and the evolutionist, the Big Bang cosmologist has to admit, and they're quick to say, well, we can't talk about the unknown, but we can define it as something beyond the natural. All right, divine creation is our second option. We can believe in a self-creation, or we can believe in a divine creation. And the divine creation, and again, there are other, by the way, options. There's options that there is no creation. There are other, but I'm just talking about options that the average person might actually buy. I'm talking about The fact that we're dealing with origins. And if we believe we are here and we believe we are created and we believe this isn't some, uh, you know, phantom or some non-reality. But if we believe in reality, it got here through a transcendent, metaphysical, eternal reality that cannot be submitted to the rules of anything. It's not physics. It's metaphysics. We would say, or I would say, let me not speak for you, that I believe in a transcendent creator that is personal. There's the difference. They would say, whatever it is, it's not nature, right? It can't be nature. It has to be something beyond nature. We are saying, I am saying at least, that I believe in a transcendent God who is transcendent and he happens to be personal. He's transcendent. Now note this, not in location, but in kind or in class, We often think of transcendence, just because the word is a spatial word. talk a lot about the way words communicate to us. And when you think about a word, transcendent, we think about something that is away from us. If you think about a transcendent God, I think most people think he's way far away in heaven. That's not the point. Much like the Big Bang cosmology that speaks of something exploding without a center or without an edge, which can't even be drawn, something that explodes into reality... We would believe, I would believe, that there is a transcendent personal God that exists not far away, but he exists far away in terms of definition, in in terms of kind. He is not subject to the laws of physics or nature. He sits outside of those. He is the creator of those. I mean, if you want to call it metaphysics, I suppose, as classical philosophy has sometimes called it, no problem. It's beyond natural. It is supranatural. Supernatural. Just like whatever it is we believe about the singularity or the pre-Big Bang cosmos. In other words, the eternal energy, whatever it is prior to Big Bang, we're just saying, I guess we can speak in those terms to what we mean when we talk about a God who is so different in class that he does not subject himself to the rules of nature. He is different. He's wholly other. And that eternal reality we would call a person is the eternal cause ...of the material world, including human beings, and the eternal, to use Aristotle's word, the eternal mover of all things. And that mover and that cause is not something that is supernatural and I don't know what it is. We would assert that it is a personal intelligent God. So for the discussion of intelligence and design, that came out of an intelligent creator, a transcendent personal intelligence... To put it plainly, I believe in a supernatural person, not a supernatural something, whatever that is. But I am saying we're kind of talking in the same categories here. But you're talking of a certain non-personal, non-intelligent, non-thinking reality. And I'm talking about a reality that I believe is personal and intelligent. The unknown, which is what pre-Big Bang cosmology is all about. The unknown to which the laws of physics do not apply. I would agree with there is something... And it's a person. Now, if you're not knowing who Mike Fabares is, you may think, wow, he believes in the Big Bang. And it was God that started the Big Bang. You don't really think that, do you? No, that's not where we're going. Okay, But understand, I'm trying to show parallels between the reality of what we're dealing with when we're talking about where we came from. Where did all this come from? Well, it came from a Big Bang. What was it that was the catalyst of the Big Bang? What was it that was beyond the material world, beyond time and space, beyond what can be subjected to the laws of physics? What was that? It was the unknown, eternal energy, whatever it was, it was the thing we don't know, but it was supernatural, beyond the natural laws. All I'm saying is divine creation believes in the supernatural personality, the intelligence, the transcendent God. All right, now this may not make sense to see this on your worksheet we're not doing any review here what we're doing though these words may be a bit of a throwback to our theology proper discussion but what i want to do is say let's talk about in terms of origins and cosmology let's start with thinking through now the definitions of what that unknown supernatural intelligent being is like just to think through here kind of thinking in terms of classical apologetics if you are into those worlds of the difference between apologetic beliefs But let's just talk in these terms. Theology proper. Why would I consult theology proper at this point in terms of origins? Because I want to talk about what can we know just in terms of our rational thought about the uncaused cause or Aristotle's phrase, the unmoved mover. What is that in terms of our thinking about deity, about God? Well, let's think through some of the classic discussions in this. We would say whatever that is, that unknown not subjected to the laws of physics reality that's an option to the self-made universe, we would say, well, the cosmological reasons would lead us, first of all, just to assert the very thing I put up at the top line. And that is that we would say it's reasonable to believe that effects have causes, that things moving have movers, that things that are going have something that made it get going. That something that has something happening had something beyond it that made it happen. That That's pretty classic in terms of philosophers throughout the centuries thinking about deity and if there's a God or not. They call it the cosmological reasons because when we think about the biggest cause of all or the biggest effect of all, we say it's the universe, the material universe. That then had a cause that we would believe preexisted and existed outside of it all. Now, the teleological argument in theology proper, sometimes we think of this in terms of apologetics, is there a God? I'm thinking just in terms of origins now, I'm thinking that gives me reason to shape even further my idea of what I mean by saying this is a personal intelligence. And the teleological, and you know all these words are Greek, right? Logical, we know the study of telos is the word in Greek for purpose or goal. Telos, purpose or goal, is the way we describe this argument in thinking philosophically through the fact that what we have is not just something that is crudely happening. It's not just a bowling ball that's you know, rolling through the universe. We have things that are much more complex than that that have purpose. Males were made for females, and males and females made for one another have children. And we see all these things that have purpose and cause. That's what teleos or the teleological argument is all about. Things in the universe aren't just random, they have reasons, they have usages. I like to say in terms of teleological arguments, we have reasons to believe that, that all this design, all this order, all this beauty that we have, to stretch it even further, have an intelligent cause. All of those things that we would say are intelligent, there must be something more intelligent that made that happen. If there is information within our DNA that is useful, the Logical philosophical musings about deity, the unknown uncaused cause, the unmoved mover, is a deity that must have the ability to think through all that, who has the ability to encode all that, who has the ability to manufacture all that with purpose and plan and all the design that goes into it. I mean, announced the, the, you know, the Apple Watch this week. We, we sit there and we think about that and we think through how it works to manufacture it and the teams to program the software and the architects to design it all. All of those things, we're assuming that the guys that are doing that have the intelligence to express that intelligence in the product. And, and in teleological argument, we're saying that God must be really smart. Cut your arm off, take a look at it real carefully, and then put it back together. You say, wow, that's very complicated, just my simple little arm. There's a lot going on there. I assure you, you will put it together more poorly than the creator put it together. And and, and all I'm telling you is in all of the design of all that we see in our body, the universe, whatever it might be, the structure of bones in my ankles, those are things that we believe were philosophically musing on deity must be an intelligent, a very intelligent God. We talk about theology proper. We talk about moral reasons. What kind of God is he? He's beyond intelligent and he's beyond powerful, powerful cause and effect, intelligence, design, order, and beauty, but moral reasons. And beauty, I suppose, would kind of flop over into both of these categories. But what I mean by that is we have reasons to believe that moral laws have a legal architect. Sometimes we talk about law giver, but I like the words legal architect a little bit better because it helps me understand that the morality that we seek, the morality that that in our hearts and in our minds is offended when something egregious happens, Uh, the, the conscience that I bear, the rules that I want to make for my society, the things that I want to happen in my kid's classroom, the ideas that should govern my homeowner's association, all those things that I think about and we humans can agree upon as the good thing and the right thing because we're all driven by some kind of moral sense, We're saying, historically, philosophically, as we muse on the unknown, unmoved mover, this must be a God of of morality, a God who thinks through the architecture of how we ought to be and how we ought to behave and what virtue is and what we should and shouldn't do. Cosmological, teleological, moral arguments. One more that is usually dismissed out of hand because people don't spend time to understand it, and of course this is not theology proper, and we can spend more time on it if it were, I suppose, but the ontological argument, which I think comes into play when I think through origins, because I'm trying to say, what would it be just musing philosophically about the uncaused cause? What kind of cause would that be? The self-creators or the theorists who believe in self-creation, they don't have that intelligent moral being that causes it. And and when I think about ontological arguments, if you are not exposed to that, ontos in Greek means being or that which is. Anselm in the 11th and 12th century was the one who popularized this theory under the heading ontological argument. But it has to do with the idea when I think about whatever that uncaused supreme being is, there seems to be reason for us to accept and adopt that humanity's intuitive conception of divinity is generally right, that there is a God who's not just smart and not just powerful, but a God who is, as I like to say here, the omni-being. He's the omni-God. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He has the supreme attributes of all that we envision as perfect. Now, again, I think so often in Apologetics 101, the ontological argument is usually laughed at, do yourself a favor perhaps if you're into these arguments regarding the existence of God to at least understand how it helps to shape the definition of God. There are actually two aspects to the ontological argument, not only his um, perfection, but his necessity, which is probably more commonly discussed in modern apologetics. And that is that there is this necessity for the being in other words, and this is not a default, but this is a reasoned, logical acceptance that our conception of an all powerful being, which, by the way, ask an anthropologist, the secular anthropologist, is a universal concept. You do not have to teach people in out-of-the-way places to believe and seek after the omni-being. They're out there. Even if they split and divide the responsibilities, the idea of an all-powerful being, that's intuitive. Now, that necessary being, particularly when we think about reality, we eventually get back, whether you're Aristotle or whether you're Hubble, you get back at some point to saying there's a necessity for that. There has to be a supernatural reality. Either you believe in eternal matter, that exists under the laws of physics, or something that transcends it. And at least the popular view today, the accepted prevailing view, is it's something outside of reality. It's something outside of what we can now submit to the laws of nature. And whatever that is, it seems very necessary. And that's logical, because the eternal steady-state theory of eternal matter and the universe always existing as it has been never made a lot of sense, and most people have long since rejected that, except for the man on the street, perhaps. To use Francis Schaeffer's terms, when it comes to thinking through creation, origins, self-created, or divinely created, what we're affirming is there seems to be a God that is there. Have you read any Francis Schaeffer? It's a good place to to start in his book, God Who Is There. There seems to be the omniscient, omnipotent, all-powerful cause who is the unmoved mover. It's reasonable to believe and affirm that, at least in my mind. Another aspect of theology, which I think is on the back of your worksheet, that we should think through to show you why I'm not just a big bang theorist that believes this supernatural something is the supernatural divine being is because, as Francis Schaeffer would put it, he's not only there, but he is not silent. I believe in a God that is spoken and that has to be established, I suppose, in 13 weeks in our bibliology series, which you're welcome to listen to. Bibliology starts with this, that the Bible, the written Bible, the, the scripture, the word of God is God's revealing of things that would not otherwise be known. The word revelation, that's what it means. The disclosure of things that you wouldn't know unless, unless God disclosed them. Right? Probably there's no one in the room that knows what I had for lunch today. Not even my wife. No one knows. If, I, if you were to know that, I would have to disclose that. And the Bible claims to be the medium through which, the avenue through which, God has chosen to reveal himself. Now, he's done it in other ways, as the Bible would tell us. But he does it primarily through, in the unchanging way, through the written word, which is the claim of the book. Now, again, I could write a book tonight that claims to be the word of God. But I just want to make it clear that the Bible, in many places, and here's the classic central text on this, claims to be breathed out by God. Theo. Nuo. Those are the two compounds that are put together, you know, or two roots that are put together in a compound word that God, Nuo, is to breathe. He, he blew it out. He breathed it out. The communication came as though he himself were speaking. And if you were close enough, you could feel his breath, which is all an anthropomorphism, I understand. We're just making God out to be a person in that picture. He's not a person. He has no breath. He has no teeth. He has no tongue. But the picture is that what we read in the Bible, the scriptures, is the breathed out communication from God. And because of that, if that's the truth, at least here's the claim, it'd be profitable for you learning from it, teaching. It'd be profitable for you to have reproof, to be stopped in your tracks if you're going the wrong direction, for correction to turn you around and drive you in the different direction in what you're thinking or believing or doing, and training you, keeping you on the path of what is right. If that's the case, you'd go to that book to figure that out. That's the claim of the Bible. The evidence of divine revelation we spent a lot of time on at various sermons, but even in the bibliology lectures, we talked about what evidence do we have that the Bible is not just a book that's lying to us. Much like the test that C.S. Lewis uses regarding Christ's divinity claims, we could make the same kind of test about the revelation claims of the Bible. His classic question is he, he's either one of the three. He's, he's the liar, he's the lunatic, or he's the Lord. He's, he's either deceiving us he's either crazy and believes it but he's wrong or he is who he says he is bible's the same way if it makes a claim of divine revelation i've got to look at the evidence and i'm either going to determine the bible is purposefully lying it knows it's not divine revelation and from moses to peter they're all just lying to us about being the spokesperson of god on on paper or they're deceived they think they are Just like you might think if someone handed you a book and said, here, I wrote this book and it's really a medium of communication from God, revealing things you wouldn't otherwise know about God unless he revealed it through me. You'd probably think that guy was crazy. Maybe the book's crazy. The people believe that that's true, but it's not true when they wrote it or it really is. And the evidence, and there's so much that we talk about when we deal with the the, the, the legitimacy of the claim, the veracity of the truth claim that it is god 's word, I, one of the i mean I only have time for this because we 're not teaching bibliology, but let me throw out isaiah forty six and, and when God speaks through Isaiah, the point is listen, I have proven this, I am God, there is no other, I am God, there is none like me. I declare, and he puts this as a participle because it continues to go we 're not done with the Bible at this point, declaring the end from the beginning whether it's about Cyrus and the reconstitution of Israel in the land, or whether it's about the coming of Christ, whether it's about the second coming of Christ, whether it's about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, whether it's about the rise of the Antichrist, he sees it before it happens and declares the end, what's going to happen afterwards, from the beginning before it happens. From ancient times, he's even said things with the, from the beginning with Moses, things that have not yet happened yet, not yet done. And he says, he's saying in this, my counsel, what I've written, what I've said, shall stand. What I say about what's coming, it's going to happen. When I purpose to do something, I will accomplish my purpose. So if you were to look in the Bible and be able to see without any dispute that these records of what were written by the prophets were written at a time and and affirmed at that time, ...can be attested to was before the reality of the fulfillment of those promises... ...and there were enough exacting fulfillments that could convince you... ...that that's something human beings can't do... ...then you would have to believe that that's at least one of the divine fingerprints... ...on the Bible that would lead you to say this must be a supernatural book... ...a book that does what other books don't do... ...the Quran doesn't do it, the writings of Confucius don't do it... ...you can pick any religion in the world, it doesn't put together a body of prophetic statements... That start in the first part of it, like we do in the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses, all the way through the prophets, all the way through Christ and the promises he makes about the future. It's filled with prophetic statements that at least to this time are 100% accurate. And if that's the case, I look at the text and say, there's some evidence of divine revelation here. And God puts his imprimatur on it. And he's trying to show his exclusiveness as God by declaring those things. And so many passages we could look at, which I've done elsewhere at other times, to say, I trust the Bible as a divine medium of his communication and revelation to mankind. Letter C. There's another one. And a lot of Christians immediately go here. And it's not a bad place to go. And that is that God himself entered into time and space. The holy other, not in location, but in class... The transcendent God, not in geography, but in kind. He's so different at some point. We could picture this now, just like the Big Bang. With no center and no edge, he steps into the fabric of space and time. He does so, by the way, in Nazareth with Mary as an embryo, as a tiny child, as a pre-born baby. And invades time and space in a miraculous pattern without a father. And he comes to term, and is born into the world, down there in Bethlehem, after the census, and he is now posited in the scripture as the one revealing God, because he is God, in the words of Hebrews, and we could look all through his own statements in the gospels, but let's just look at the summary after Christ went back in the ascension. Here was the writer of Hebrews, as long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. So the ancient people of God, they had a lot of people coming and speaking to them, and it was God. God was speaking through what? The prophets. But in these last days, from their perspective, when all those old prophets had spoken, then there was four hundred years of silence. Now he is spoken to us by his son. So the revelation of God, now we can say, I mean, the, the cherry on top of it all is God put on human form. He when I say that, because he's about to say that, he appointed the heir of all things, he's going to be the ruler of people. Through whom also he created the world. There's our topic. More on that later. He is the radiance of the glory of God. I mean, if you want to know what God is, as he said to his disciples, right? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the exact imprint of his nature. Now, the nature of God is he's transcendent. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's, I mean, that is the embodiment of that. Yeah, he's that, encased, the imprint of the nature of God, this holy other completely different transcendent being is now on the planet. He stepped through the fabric of space and time and he's here. At least he was here. He's coming back. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power, which is that ontological understanding of who we would expect God to be, who the Bible reveals him to be, puts his handprints all over it and shows you that was the God who spoke in that book. And now he shows up in this weird complex being. We have this triune God The second person of this God had steps into time and space and now he's going to do some things and people are going to write all about him and he's going to teach and do some amazing things like rise from the dead, which he said from the beginning, even points back to the Bible and says it predicted it. You can see it in Isaiah 53 and a lot of other places. And we have, as it's put in Romans chapter one, him being declared to be the son of God through ultimately the resurrection from the dead, not to mention all the miracles that he did, not to mention that he himself was the fulfillment of all the old Testament prophecies. So, in this book, we have this story of this incarnate God who walks among us. God is here in time and space. That book, and even that person, spoke often about our origins. So, a self-created theory, believing that there has to be something that doesn't subject itself to the laws of physics that sits outside the natural realm, a supernatural, eternal something... I'm choosing to believe that this is a supernatural, holy, other, transcendent person with intelligence and there's reason to believe that he should be intelligent and that he should be powerful and that he should be the unmoved cause, uh, the unmoved mover and and the uncaused cause, that he should be the moral law giver, the architect of law, that he should be the one that we would all universally intuitively expect. Now that God does reveal himself in quite exactly the terms that we did expect and that book describes how we got here. I mean, it starts that way. That's the first verse of the Bible. It now says, this book with the imprimatur of God, the fingerprints of God, spoken of the coming of his own entrance into time and space, and even Christ himself saying, let me tell you about how we got here. It doesn't mention a big bang. It speaks of a big word that was spoken. Let's step out of all this for a second and talk about why all the controversy. Well, I don't think I really have to spend much time on this. I I mean, you obviously know there is a lot of controversy. But let me say this. It's not because all the smart people are on one side of this and all the dumb people are on the other side of this. That is how the rhetoric goes often, but that's not the case. Let me make this very clear right up front. Take two people, equally smart, super smart. Let's put them, the smart people, put them on two sides of, of this argument and you can find that there are equally smart people on both sides of the argument. has nothing to do with intelligence or the ability to reason. It has to do with one word presuppositions the decision that we make as Francis Schaeffer would say to believe that there is a God and that he has spoken there is a God that is there and he has revealed himself which I'm trying to say very briefly and quickly seems to be a reasonable and rational thing that even the self-creators believe in something it's just not a personal intelligent something it's something non-personal and non-intelligent but not natural presuppositions Presuppositions, by that, of course, we presuppose things. It is the starting point. The things that we presuppose for all of our logic and all of our reason. If we're going to reason through something, we have a certain set of understandings about reality, and we start with those. And the Christian basic presuppositions are, there is a God and he has revealed himself. It is assumed in an assumed set of underlying reality. I believe these things. Now, as for the self-creators, they believe things like this. There is no designer. Whatever it was, it's, it wasn't personal and all of this started as some accident. There wasn't an intentional fuse because that would need some intelligent force behind it to time it, to plan it, to say, you know, on this date, you know, in 13.8 you know, billion years BC, we're going to start this thing. There's no designer. There's no pers- person. There's no intellect, emotion, and will. It's, it's, this is an explosion. And from this, these things just happen to happen. The presuppositions of someone who's a theist would say, oh, you know, there's a thoughtful starting point to this, there's a knowable person behind this, and there's a plan in all of this. You can see, by the way, most people who believe in Big Bang cosmology or any kind of evolution, they don't live consistent with their presuppositions. You can think about that a little bit because in reality, if we don't have a designer, there's not a person behind this. There's nothing personal. This is a result of chaos and accident. It certainly would lead to a different kind of ethic in life. That's for another time. But presuppositions are what this is all about. And when presuppositions and assumptions differ, the conclusions are going to be different, even if you look at the same evidence, same evidence. Uh, Let's just say somebody flew in from, flying from another planet. I woke up this morning and uh, going through my routine, I turn on the news to make sure LA is not on fire. And I hear, the first thing I hear in my recently slumbering ears is, it's been 13 years, since September 11th, quote unquote. It's been 13 years since September 11th. Now let's think through that that sentence. It has been 13 years since September 11th. Now, there's a set of presuppositions that that newscaster or the writer of that news copy expects me, the listener, to apply to that sentence. If not, it's a great line for a science fiction book. I mean, time stopped, I don't know. I mean, there could be a number of theories we could create. The presupposition is I understand that something important, something egregious, something terrible, something tragic happened on September 11th. It has not been 13 years since September 11th. We had one. We're having one today. We had one last year. We had one the year before that. We've been having them for 13 years. I've had 13 of them since 13 years ago. But that's not what they meant. And they knew that's not what I was going to understand because they assumed as they woke up, I would understand that's a date marked in history and in infamy. It's a day I would understand. So I am bringing my presupposition to that statement to interpret it to get an, an understanding. If you, spent, if you sent a ton of really smart people into the room from another planet, they knew nothing of our history in America. knew Nothing of world history. Heard that statement, they would have to interpret that evidence, those words, and have to figure out what in the world we mean. If you walk on the beach with your kid and, and your kid sees some sandcastle that, there or some design in the sand. And the assumption of your child is because it's late or it's early. Or, and they think that's amazing the way that the wind and the waves and the birds created that, that thing. It's, it's like a castle or it's a picture of a gecko or whatever it is. Look at that. that that's an amazing thing. As where an informed parent may look at that evidence, same exact evidence, and say, well, that's not the cause of that. There's a different cause of that because those sandcastles don't happen on their own. Because I understand the sandcastle building contest last night and this one was left over from that. Or there was some artist out here early this morning painting a gecko in, or you know, inscribing a gecko in the sand. So the same evidence by two different people based on what they presuppose about reality, they're bringing that to everything they look at. Everybody brings the assumptions of reality to the evidence. And I'm talking about geologic evidence, paleontology, astrophysics, whatever it is. You've got to figure out what the presuppositions are. And those equally smart people are going to come to different conclusions. And, and all I'm telling you is that is the reality of presuppositions, always has been. It's why some, and I forget who this author was, but I read him a long, long time ago, who said, God will judge us on our presuppositions. And that was such a good thing for me to remember. It was like, I was a new Christian, but I thought that is a great way to put it. Because the reality of what I choose to start with as my reasoning point really decides where I end up and how I interpret everything that I encounter. Another word for it today that's very popular is your worldview. You've heard that, a lot of talk of that. The worldview, the worldview that you have, the way you view the world is based on some fundamental starting points. And my fundamental starting point, which I think is reasonable and rational, is that the other, the transcendent, the unknown thing that's beyond this reality is not a thing at all. It's an intelligent person. And then from there, I recognize he is broken into time and space, not only his word through the inscription and the voice of the prophets, but himself in time and space in the person of Christ. That then leads me to take a look at the Bible, and and that becomes my guide now to interpreting the information that I encounter. And I have no problem looking at the information that I do encounter, not that I'm a physicist or a geologist or a paleontologist. But I look at the realities that I do encounter in my reading and my understanding and all my classroom work and all my university studies. And I say, makes perfect sense through the grid of my starting point, my presuppositions. And people may say, that's ridiculous. Your conclusions are wrong. And the only reason an equally smart person would come to that conclusion is because their presuppositions are different. And all I have to say is most people arguing about this really haven't reasoned from their presuppositions. They're just parroting back whatever it is the culture is saying. All right, that's why the controversy, presuppositions. What I want to do now is believing there is a God. He has revealed himself. I want to look at the biblical assertions. What are the assertions in the Bible regarding our origins? Here's the assertion over and over and over and over and over again. The Bible asserts having the fingerprints of divine revelation, having Christ coming into the world and affirming it, the Christ that rose from the dead, the Christ that is my only hope of forgiveness before the tribunal of God, the one who spoke perfectly in sync with my conscience and the moral law. The, the lawgiver has spoken. The book has spoken. And it says what? God is the personal and direct creator of all that exists. He created personally and directly. Don't have time, but let me throw some at you real quick. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 6. And when I talk about God, again, he's a complicated, mysterious other He's a transcendent God that exists as a three-in-one personality. And when I think of creation, the whole magnitude of the personalities of God were involved. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to put it in traditional terms. Deuteronomy 32, 6. Thus you repay the Lord. Moses said, you foolish and senseless people. Is he not your father? God is our father. He created you. He made you. And he established you. We're not deists. He not only made us. He works within time and space and does what he accomplishes through people. He has established you. He's given you these things. He's done this in your life. He made you. He created you. Even from the beginning, the second verse of the Bible, the Spirit of God was involved in this. Hovering. If you were with us in our pneumatology study, we looked at that Hebrew word and how it's used throughout the Bible and how the Spirit is often spoken of in regarding uh, creation. Some agency of the Spirit, the the third person of the Godhead, is involved in this creative process. And, of course, Christ. I mean... (laughs) repeatedly in the new testament saying things like this in the beginning was the word it's going to be defined later in the text as jesus speaking to us as hebrews one says in his son that person the messiah in the beginning was the messiah he existed before the creation of things and the word was with god and the word was god he was in the beginning with god and all things were made through him and without him this is a big statement was not anything made that was made he is the agency, the collaborator, some, in some way, either the construction, the architect, as we showed pictures in pneumatology. You can envision it however you want to envision it by taking the data that we have, but all three persons that God did directly and personally involved in the creation of, of all that is. There's not anything that was made. There's not a supernova. There's not a planet. There's not a ring around Saturn. Nothing that was made that was not made, the Bible says, By the triune God. God creates with a word. Now he doesn't speak. Think about this. That's not the idea. If you think about the very beginning. There's not yet any air. There's not. There's no way to rattle sound waves. Whatever you think of as a word. Don't think of as a word. The idea of word. Is the expression of will. As it says elsewhere in the Bible. God creates by the intention of his will. That's all he needs. The unknown thing. Which we believe is a person behind the reality of all that exists, creates not with any difficulty or striving, but with the intention of his own thoughts. God said, which is an anthropomorphic way to describe God's creative work, because he didn't have to say anything, but he expresses his will, as it says elsewhere in the Bible, and starts with photons. He starts with the fabric of the universe. He starts with the, the time-space realities that relate to light itself, and speaks it, and it happens. Second Peter 3, 5 which quoted this recently, deliberately the mockers overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Why he did that, we've talked about before, but God creates with this water on the planet and he starts to create systematically and that, the Bible says, was all done with the word, with the expression and the intention of God. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth which, by the way, that Hebrew word, same word for spirit, by the spirit of his mouth, all their hosts, all the stars. That's what host is. Host means like army men, which is the personification of the stars, the the army of, of the sky. By the word of God, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts, by a simple intention. So God creates, he creates directly and personally, and he creates with an expression of his will. Thirdly, these things, as we look at what he created, are supposed to highlight his attributes. Everything about what we see, which if you look at the teleological argument, which I tried to expand a little bit further than is normally expanded in apologetics books to include things uh, more than just design, but the kinds of things that include even beauty, the reality of usable, beautiful, symmetrical things. When we look at what God creates, the Bible repeatedly says those things, if you look at them, should tell you something about the God who created. And it should be clear to you that there is a God of glory, of gravitas kabod, Hebrew, glory, the weightiness of God, the majesty of God, the creativeness of God, the heavens declare the kabod of Elohim, the the, the weightiness, the gravitas of God. And the sky proclaims his handiwork, which unless you're out of the way, out of the basin here and somewhere up in the mountains or whatever, you don't see the way the ancients saw. But when you do see it, the way the ancients saw it, without all the lights from streetlights and cities, you get a glimpse of, even without a telescope, it, it speaks something of God's creative symmetry, beauty, glory, power. Day to day, they pour forth speech, and night to night, they reveal knowledge. A six-septillion-ton rock called the planet, spinning at 1,000 miles an hour, orbiting the sun at 1,000 miles per second, in a 580-million-mile ellipse around the sun, giving us seasons. As we get back into the fall here, I mean, just think about how this all works. I mean, the, the sun, a ball of fusion, some 93 million miles away. It's got a diameter, the sun, of course, of 865 million miles. And the moon, this little orbiting satellite of 2,160 miles, which is only 234,000 miles away, which is not all that far, which really, as you talk to people in the field, this is like not even making sense that we have a satellite so big that's so close. How do we get it? All the theories, people debate the theories because it's hard to believe that such a big satellite could exist so close to the planet at such a size. But that 238,000 mile, which is not that far, some of you drive your cars that far in a lifetime, in your car's lifetime, that satellite being proportionally 400 times closer than the sun, also happens to be 400 times closer to the earth. Have you thought this one through? I've said this before, but think about just the symmetry of looking in the sky and seeing a ball of fusion that lights and warms our skin during the day, and a moon going through phases that reflects that sun at night and gives us light on the planet, not original light, but reflective light. Those two spheres in the sky, from the perception of the crust of the earth look exactly the same diameter. I mean, there are two quarters that are exactly the same size depending on the orbit of the earth. They fluctuate just a little bit. That's why we have those eclipses that just barely eclipse the sun and those that make the corona all the way around it. The idea here is all you have to do is look in any direction, even without a telescope, and you start to recognize the reality of God's glory in all of this. God is a God that creates and says, you should be able to look at what I created and see things like my invisible attributes, things about me that are not visible. This unknown person, even without a Bible should come alive to you just by looking at the things I've made, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature. They've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that people can't sit there and go, I didn't know there was a God. I didn't think God was a God of beauty, symmetry, order. I didn't know he wanted my life to be beautiful, symmetrical, and orderly. These are all things that no one will be able to stand before God and say, I didn't know, the Bible says, because we should be able to, through natural theology, understand that just by giving it a little bit of thought. God creates things personally and instantaneously and directly. He creates things that in his creation are done with an expression of his will, by his word. They highlight his attributes, the things that he has made. And yet with all of that, because you weren't there and I wasn't there and the prophets that speak to this in a book that predicts the future, even though it has the imprimatur and signature of God, still requires an informed, intelligent faith, an informed trust in the details of this because only God could tell us how this happens, which is true of any origins theories. I say this because of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 says, by faith... We understand that the universe was created by the word of God. That what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. He creates something out of nothing. And we have to understand, as any theory of origins does, that there is some mystery to that that we're left with as we stand here as mere mortals without the tape to look at, that we trust God and take his word on how he did this. Though the evidence matches the frame, we could come up with a third proposition, I suppose, and theorize. But we're going to trust that God exists, that he has spoken, and he's spoken clearly. But it goes beyond, this is not a blind faith, it goes beyond that because when God invaded time, and oh by the way, yeah, I can look even in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 4, he says you should understand even by looking at things like a house is built by someone, you should understand there has to be a cause and a designer and a builder of the universe, the builder of all things that we see, all things that we experience here is God. Anyway, my point is, when it comes down to it, I don't have to just sit there and say, well I guess it makes sense and the details I'll just have to take at face value, trusting God is being honest with me. But when I think about God creating something out of nothing, which is what he says, out of things that are not visible, then I have to recognize, well, it's not like that was all done in some primordial past where there was nobody to see it. And that's true. But the class of creation, the way that that was done, we have all kinds of examples from the life of Christ. And that's helpful for us. It should be helpful for us. That God is a God that didn't just say, well, I did this. Now, the details of which from my word instantaneously personally and directly these kinds of things you don't have to just say well i've never seen anything like that because god now invades the fabric of space and time and he starts doing them the examples of christ i could think of a dead lazarus for instance in john 11 now again this is not as dramatic as something out of nothing with the whole of a person because you're saying well he's got he's got all of his parts there well the answer is no he doesn't have all of his parts there he's been dead for four days There's a little book, I think it's still available on the internet. It's kind of gross to read. It's called What Happens to You When You Die. And it's not a theological book. It's written by a doctor about all the things that happen to you immediately upon your death. The enzymes that break down, the putrefaction, the the releasing of gases in your body. See, this is not fun reading on your off day. But when you start to read what happens to your physical, biological container... The the moment you die and the processes that kick into place, you recognize when that's been going on for four days and you get on the scene, you don't have all of Lazarus there. You got all kinds of deterioration and putrefaction, as, as it says in the old King James, Lord, he stinketh. Remember that? This is not a good scene. So Christ comes on the scene. He doesn't just put the jump, jumper cables on him and go, let's see if we can just kickstart this guy. He is dead on a cellular level. In a variety of ways that are going to need a complete you know, remaking here. And, and this is just one example. A dead Lazarus comes to life personally, instantaneously with this line. Lazarus, come forth. Remember that? With a word, personally, an expression of the will of the almighty God, creating something out of nothing on a cellular level in this body. Bacteria levels that are completely out of whack. Things that are completely wrong in every system of the body, from his brain to his vascular system to his lungs. Think about this. He is completely, this isn't mostly dead, right? This isn't the prince's bride. He is fully dead for four days and he comes to life. The paralytic. Paralytic's always close and dear to my heart because my daughter's a paralytic. She's paralyzed from the knees down. You know, we sit around on the couch at night. I've got to stop telling these uh, illustrations because soon she'll be in here because she's going to get older. Her little cute little legs are just sticks. You understand that. From the knee down, there is atrophy. I mean, the things that need to happen. If you were to instantaneously and personally, as it happened in, in Matthew 9, make those legs walk. To let her skip and to jump and to run. You would have to create a lot of things out of nothing. You'd have to have things happen on a cellular level in the muscles of that leg and the, the, the damaged uh, you know, nerves of that leg, the, the, the tendons and the ligaments. Things would have to happen in a big way instantaneously to have the man take up his mat and walk away. These are the kinds of miracles that Jesus repeatedly did almost 40 times in the Gospels, doing things that spoke to his creative power, the withered hand. Just even the way that's described in ancient language, the withered hand. You've seen people with a withered hand. The hand is one of the most complex, at least the things that we see on a regular basis on the external of our bodies. This is an amazing thing with the servos and the the, the ligaments and the tendons. Such a delicately designed thing. And all of a sudden, that withered hand, uh, he stretches it out and he does it with a word. Stretch out your hand, verse 5. Blind man, go to your, your ophthalmologist or your optometrist. I mean, you've taken those scans of your eyeballs at Dr. Nota's office or whatever. Right? Amazing, this, th- these things we call our eyeballs. Here's a man born blind. Think about that. Whether it's John 9, Luke 18, you've got people blind from birth. And you've got things immediately happening when Jesus says these words, receive your sight. If you just think medically for a minute, these are impossibilities, these are, are direct personal creations and expressions of power creatively, of something out of nothing, of things visibly happening out of an invisible reality. Jesus doing this over and over and over again. When he creates, he creates mature, useful realities. When he does that, and I'm just looking at the reprisal of that creation in Genesis... But if you were to think through the Genesis account, at least as it's presented to us, we get Adam as an infant. No, he grows up as an embryo in the dirt. No, he comes as a a complete human being instantly out of the dirt. Adam and Eve. uh, Eve had a perfect belly button. just want you to think about that for a second. She didn't need it, hadn't used it, but it was there. And there's trees in the garden. Chop one down. What do you see inside of that? You see a mature, useful reality that bears the marks, just like the strengthening of a tree through the rings, through the process of growing. All of that developed, mature, usable instantaneously in the garden. Garden, mature, useful, mature realities, Christ-creative miracles, same way. I I think of this often, and I I usually use this example because, you know, most of us, even in high school, taking classes, we understand something about, you know, the chemistry. I mean, we may not know the chemistry of wine, for instance, but you you look at Jesus in John chapter 2, Taking six pots, those ancient pots, this is about 150 gallons of water. He's got these stone pots that were probably 25, 30 gallons a piece. And he instantaneously turns H2O. I just want you to think in those terms into C6H12O6, which is hextose. It's the sugars that we have, not to mention all the peptides and all the enzymes and all the proteins in wine. CO2, you know what that is. Just bubbles up a little bit a little bubbly why because that's what happens in the, in the fermentation process and and it's got c2h2oh which you should take in moderation or not at all alcohol all of that comes instantaneous. very complex uh chemicals here go look them up you know get the pictures out there on on wikipedia or something these are complex molecules Put together in a perfect balance, not to mention the enzymes and the proteins and all that it takes in the pH balance to make wine taste the way it ought to taste. And Jesus does this instantaneously. Oxidation, bacterial growth, all these things that happen in that product done instantly. Uh, Let me throw this out. What if you were the paralytic's dad? Jesus had just come. Now remember, if you know the story in Luke, it happens in Galilee. People had come up from Judea and Jerusalem. but There, let's just say your paralytic son, now I'm kind of adding some, you know, for illustration's sake, some imaginative aspects to the story. Your son is the paralytic. Your son gets healed. You walk all the way to Jerusalem back home. Now there are people, let's just say this, let's say your son grew up in Galilee. You brought him back. You were from Jerusalem. He was on his own. You bring him back and you now start showing your son off to people. Your son now, you know, does this with his calf muscles and shows them off. And he's showing, and your friends happen to be physicians. Hmm. And you say, you know what? A week ago, my son had little toothpick legs because he was a paralytic. No. Yes. It's exactly what happened. Yes. Matter of fact, all these people saw it. It was amazing. Why? Because the Messiah, the son of man from Daniel seven, with all the power and authority comes and speaks a word. And he says, take up your mat and walk. So my son, oh, and here he is, look at those thighs. Look at him. Look at those calves. What? Jump for him, Junior. Jump. Look at him. Look, how, look at his vertical leap. It's huge. Amazing. Your doctor friends would say, not true. Why? Because I have scientific evidence that that never happened. I can look at that. I know, what, I know what a mature calf muscle is. I know how long it takes to get a calf to look like that. It is not scientifically reality. All I'm telling you is, no matter how you deal, With the reality of the evidence that we have. As we go to the Natural History Museum or you watch the Discovery Channel. We're dealing with evidence that if you presuppose that the supernatural is not a non-thinking accidental thing that's eternal. Some kind of infinitesimal tiny little singularity of something that does not apply to the rules of physics. But we don't know what it is and can't even talk about it. But the wholly other transcendent thing is the intelligent personal God. The God who exists and has spoken and then stepped into time and space and proved that he can create useful, mature, perfect things out of nothing with a word. That end up having, as your doctor friends say in Jerusalem, a history, at least the appearance of a history, and age and maturity that they never really had. They didn't have that kind of maturity. They had no time for that maturity. They had no history because they just happened a week ago. You had an age that really can't be substantiated physically or scientifically or medically, Now, if you don't believe in God, you believe in some non-thinking, external, eternal singularity that exists beyond what is physical and doesn't play by the rules, well, then you're free to think that. And you will take all the evidence and come up with a different conclusion. But all I'm saying is those that are theists that believe in a God who has spoken, we have no problem looking at a reality of a universe that may defy logic for some paleontologist or geologist but make perfect sense when we see the evidence from the book that God wrote. All right. Well, with that said, you can see I'm not very neutral on the topic, but there are a lot of religious attempts at neutrality. Let me go through this really fast. Theistic evolution. Theistic evolution is the worst kind of attempt at collaboration and neutrality and hybrid theories because basically it concedes everything, including the kitchen sink. They say basically everything you hear on the Discovery Channel is absolutely 100% true. They believe that evolution in every way is true. It's just that behind it all, God was kind of overseeing it. It is, as we would say in our church, a GT2. God providentially oversaw all the process of evolution. So I'm throwing out everything in the book that God wrote. I don't believe any of that. What I believe is what they tell me. And again, I always ask, which theory are you buying? Today's theory, last year's theory, or tomorrow's theory? Well, I'll believe whatever theory is out there because I'm a theistic evolutionist. Well, that's one, that's one, that's one option. Another attempt at neutrality is what is called progressive creationism. Progressive creationism is not quite as giving and generous as theistic evolution. They believe that whether it's the Cambrian explosion or any kind of, of, you know, because we have such a scant and paltry uh, fossil record for humanity... Uh, They say, well, the reason for that is, kind of like the old theories of punctuated equilibrium, which is these kind of things happened at various stages. That's when God stepped in with GT1s. It's a God thing one when he supernaturally blew these creatures into into reality. Now, it happened the way the evolutionists say in terms of chronology and time. It's been billions of years, and it started with a Big Bang. But those things that needed to happen that seemed beyond reality and beyond chance, that was God. And he stepped in and supernaturally did it. Now, the evolutionists laugh at that because they have already decided there is no personal intelligent being that sits outside of this all. But the creationists here, they call themselves progressive creationists, believe that God created. We can still fit the time frames of the Discovery Channel and the History Museum. But it's not GT2s, it's GT1s. There's the day-age theory. The day age theory is, well, you know, there is that verse in Second Peter chapter 3. This is a thousand days like a day and days like a thousand years. God, you know, he, his days were really long. So that whole Genesis chapter one thing about the six days and then the seventh day, those things were super long and that's what helps me sit back and feel like there's no conflict when I watch the Discovery Channel because you know what, the world must be 13.7 billion years old, but all of that in Genesis, I still believe that, but the demarcation of times, that's just a way to speak of these really long epics of time, day, age theory. Six days, I believe that it took, but that really, you know, it comes down to 13.7 billion until they change that. And when it changes, I'll change my view on the day age theory. That's the day age theory. By the way, in Second Peter chapter 3, the reason... The statement is made about a day is a 1,000 years and a 1,000 years is a day is because God making a promise and they're questioning whether or not God has forgotten about the promise or he doesn't remember the promise or in some way that promise isn't binding because it was a long time ago. And the point is when God makes a promise, time is no issue. This is not a little key in the corner of the Bible to say, every time I see a day, I can make it a 1,000 years. And if that's the case, 6,000 years isn't long enough anyway for the Discovery Channel. So day, age theory, I'm not keen on that. Framework hypothesis. Framework hypothesis is usually done by these Hebrew professors at seminaries that don't believe in literal creation. They believe in the framework hypothesis. And they'll say this is purely an exegetical exercise. We're just looking at, at, at the Hebrew text in Genesis chapter one. And we're seeing the six days. And here's the nifty little thing we found that really gets our minds opened up. And that is day one, let there be light, has a parallel to day four, the sun, and the luminaries at night. The day two has a parallel to day five. The, uh, the waters. And then you have the expanse of the waters separating. And then day three has a parallel to day six. You've got the vegetation, the ground. You've got the things teeming in the water and the land and people and lizards and all that. So all of these things seem to show a parallel. Because I built a parallel between day one and day four, day two and day five, and day three and day six, I think that symmetry makes me think this is just a really nifty poem. And that makes me think that these aren't really meant to be taken literally. That is the framework hypothesis in a nutshell. If you hold that view, you may not like the way I presented it, but that's the gist of it, and you know it. That's what the view is, and because of these hints, now we just say it's, just, it's a poem, it's, it's a rhetorical device, it's a literary arrangement that's not at all historical. Therefore, I can believe the world's 13.7, or, you know, the universe, the explosion, 13.7 billion years ago, and the world can be millions and billions of years old, and I, I don't know how it all works because this doesn't really tell me really stops recognizing the rest of the bible on the matter as well gap theory this one you hear about still also called by the way the ruin reconstruction theory and that is that in verse number one you might remember it says in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth period verse two says and the earth was out with the and the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of god was hovering over the face of the water and then off we go in the days of creation let there be light Well, what's with that statement up at the top? God created the Sounds like it's all done by the first verse. And then you get all this information in the second verse, and it looks like it's really messed up. Formless and void without form and void. This theory, which, by the way, is a recent creation. This hasn't been floating around the landscape for thousands of years. This is a creation, like most of these creations, in the minds of people who look at the Bible and want to somehow reconcile the text with millions and billions of years. And so they said, I know where the billions of years can go between verse 1 and verse 2. God creates, and then somewhere between verse 1 and verse 2, he destroys. And in verse 2, we have this formless dark thing going on, and that's just the remnants and the debris from this ancient primordial world. That's why the rocks look so old. And that happened, and then God created in six literal days. But that gives us some time. Ruin reconstruction theory, gap theory, that's the gap theory. By the way, it doesn't take into account what's called literary recapitulation in the scripture, particularly in the books of Moses. We have statements about things being done and then they're unpacked. Even in Genesis chapter 2, we have the whole discussion of the six days and in Genesis chapter 2, We have an almost a rediscussion of it all, including the details about Eve being made. And it's like, well, Eve got made in chapter one. This is literary recapitulation. We see it ever, even in chapter five, it starts over. The point of this, I think, ignores some basic things in Hebrew literature. And it's very speculative. And it only grew out of the concern about people saying, oh, your earth is too young to match with our science. Intelligent design. This has been real popular lately, popularized. By those, and what's called the Intelligent Design Movement, ID. Uh, I've had an ID guy come uh, and speak in our church, and I, I know some ID guys that are really smart and they're great in terms of what they demand, and that is that the evidence does not uh, support a chaotic, non guided construction of things. We have irreducible complexity. That's the key core word of the ID. World, and that is that intelligent design, you see things where you cannot reduce them to any form that would still be usable and useful. Therefore, these things have to be created as whole entire systems, whether it's the eyeball or the arch in your foot or whatever it might be. These things cannot happen in part. The sexes, the complementary, these things can't kind of, you can't slide into these. This has to be designed and they do it on a microbiological level. Most of that Behe and Denton and all these guys that made it popular. But what you need to know about the ID is the point of the ID was really generated out of the concern of people kicking creationists out of textbooks and schools. These guys said, well, let's not talk about God. Let's not talk about creation. Let's not talk about the Bible. Let's just talk about the holes in evolution and that there must be some designer and design behind it all. So it's trying to be as broad a tent as possible. Anybody who even has any sense that there's problems with the evolutionary theory can join the ID movement because we prefer that we don't even talk about the Bible. We don't look at the Bible as a source of authority and we don't even you know, get into any religious matters. We're just talking about the design that was intelligently put out there. So. Theistic evolution, progressive creationism, day-age theory, framework hypothesis, gap theory, even the presentation of the intelligent design theory, even though there's some biblical creationists in that group, these are all attempts at trying to not offend and fit in and connect, okay? That you need to know. Plain reading of Genesis 1 and 2. God is a good teacher. Let me just start with that. I believe God's a good teacher. He doesn't lead us astray. seems like when I read my Bible, though some things are hard to understand, I dig into them and I'm not fooled. God's a good teacher. Let's start with that. The text is presented as six, let's add these words, 24-hour days, morning and evening, the first day, morning and evening, the second day, morning and evening, the third day. These morning and evening patterns, these connections to, for instance, ordinal numbers, let's call it this, six sequential days. When you talk about the first day and the second day, these, these ordinal numbers that give us an order to it show sequence, which the framework hypothesis guys don't buy, Right? And they try to, t- they work hard to talk their way around that. But it seems like the plain reading of the text would say this is sequential. These are days. There's a spinning planet. You've got light and dark, right? And I know you got celestial bodies and fusion being created later in the sun, but you've got days that seem to work on the rotation of the planet. This seems to be six sequential 24-hour days. Christ's corresponding miracles would lead me to say this is how Christ created. He creates instantaneously. He doesn't need a lot of time. There's not a lot of gaps. We don't believe in progressive resurrectionism or whatever. These things happened and they happened with a word. Consistent affirmation throughout the Bible. Consistent affirmation. This is maybe where we can cheat a little bit and and just fly because I just threw a bunch of passages up here. But Exodus 20, seventh day is the Sabbath. Rest on it. Don't do any work. This is to Israel. Obviously a covenant between Israel and God. Don't let your son or daughter work. Don't let your servants work. Don't let your livestock go out there and plow, right? Don't let the sojourner work. For six days, for in six days, God made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in it. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. Six days, you got six days, work six days. God rested on the seventh, you rest on the seventh. The pattern of this consistently presented as the plain reading of the text, 24 hour days. I'm going to just read the reference out. You can look these up later. Psalm 33, six through nine. We've already looked at this one. John 1, one through three. John 1, one through three. First Corinthians 8, six. First Corinthians eight six, Ephesians three nine, Ephesians three nine, Revelation four eleven, Revelation four eleven. Let's get into the words of Christ now. Mark ten six. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. There's no room for a gap there, it seems. By the way, another word of Christ. Mark thirteen nineteen, Mark thirteen nineteen. For in those days, such will be a great tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now. Matthew 24, 38. He also believed in the flood, by the way. Universal flood, Matthew 24, 38, and 39. Speaking of the writings from which we get all this, Moses, he believes that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. John 5, 45, and 46. John 5, 45, and 46. Speed writer, are you ready? So that leaves us with a relatively young earth. I don't believe that the world was created in 404 B.C. on October the 10th or whatever it is. I do not believe that. I believe a reading of the gene- genealogies gives us a lot more time than that. Just like... Rehoboam, well, that's not a good one. Let's say uh, King Hezekiah was considered the son of David. We know that wasn't one generation. There's a lot of opportunity to see a lot more time given throughout the genealogies, but I don't want to look for it. I don't want to force it, but I'm not back to 4,000 BC as all the people want to make a caricature of every creationist, but it is a relatively young earth. Radiometric dating, by the way, dating the radioactive isotopes from one parent element to a daughter element does not convince me of the age of the planet. Uh, Not only do they not match each other, there's a long series of assumptions in dating the half-life of isotopes, and you know, you can get into all this, but the bottom line is, I I believe God created a mature earth, as we said earlier. I'm not uh, convinced by that. Expect opposition regarding a creator, and you know this is an issue of the heart. I mean, ultimately, the Bible says in things like Psalm 14.1, it's A moral issue. Psalm 14, 1 and 2. Actually, should put both of those verses. The idea of denying God's involvement in things is often for the purpose of my own freedom from his morality and his judgment. So many implications there. And you should expect conflict within Christendom as an intramural debate regarding the plain reading of the text, which I think you know, right? A lot of people that name the name of Christ that do not believe in a literal creation of a relatively young earth, thousands of years, right? Not millions of years. It's not 6,000 years old. It's older than that. But the idea you get... Young Earth creationists, they're impugned regularly. Expect conflict because people want to fit in. Remember that. We don't like to be called stupid. But you should understand with all of the name calling, the fluctuating theories of creation and origins, I shouldn't say creation, the fluctuating theories and changing theories of our origins keep on being tailored to fit evidence that is interpreted in different ways. I, I just think don't worry. Everyone will be a creationist, um, if not in this life, certainly in the next.